0: You'll take your Bibles, turn, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 18, beginning verse 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 through verse 17. I'll be reading out the New King James Version, as is my custom. Acts 18, verses 1 through 17, God's word declares. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to part from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justus, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the, word, the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Well, this morning, as we press on in Acts, we we have skipped around a little bit. And so we're going to get back on track uh, for our celebration of our Lord's resurrection Easter. Uh, We jumped ahead, remember, and uh, went to Athens and saw the question of the resurrection being confronted... Uh, by people and their responses. And then went backwards a little bit and picked up on Thessalonica and Berea last week. And so we're going to press on on Paul's missionary journey to the city of Corinth. Each way as we have gone, we have seen uh, messages unlocking really how Paul and his entourage ministered the gospel to various people groups. This is not really the morphing of the gospel. This something different but rather how it is going to be packaged and presented to various peoples. And so we have seen it as he deals with the largely, uh, well, entirely Jewish population of the synagogues. We have seen uh, the message as it's relayed to those who are uh, of the Greeks, but yet are fear God. They have a knowledge of the God of Israel. They seek after him and uh, want to know the truth and there's a responsiveness there. We also have, lastly, you're bringing that to me. Okay. If I gargle, will you be upset? Should be. Lastly, we saw those that have no contact with the gospel at all. And we see how they're going to engage that, and yet, in every group, every people group of whatever stripe that we come across, consistently Paul keeps bringing them back to the gospel. Whatever the introduction to it is, whether it be through the Old Testament, whether it be through uh, the uh, special revelation or general revelation, whether it be through the, the poets of their own people, um, however the approach is to the gospel, it all comes To this point of confronting people with the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with this message of who Jesus is? When we get later on in the book of Acts, it's going to be interesting because one of uh, the officials that Paul's going to have to be uh, on trial in front of basically boils it down to this argument. This group says Jesus is dead and this guy says Jesus is alive. And that's the argument. And very perceptively, when we get there, it's a few chapters away, that's pretty much where, what it boils down to. You cannot confess that Jesus is alive and not recognize that that demands something of us. That if you accept the resurrection of the dead, if you accept that Christ rose from the dead and is now alive in heaven interceding for us as a mediator between God and man, that demands something of you. That demands that either you accept him as... Savior, or that you are flatly rejecting him, because he is the only way. He's the only truth, the only life. He's the only way to the Father, the door, the passage between us and the kingdom of God. And it is a frightening thing to consider the great volumes of people that will gather on an Easter Sunday to worship. One that they will not follow. The Christian life is about following above all else. That the demonstration of true belief is not to to gather and worship here today, but it is following every day. Our Lord and Savior. And this Paul calls people to. Whether they be Jews, whether they be God-fearing Greeks, or whether they be completely ignorant infidels that have no contact with Christianity or with the God of the Bible at all. He brings them back to various avenues to that one central core of our message, and that is a resurrected Savior. And it's not going to be any different in Corinth either, but today we want to take it in a different direction. We're going to really look more at Corinth next week. I want to look at the circumstances around it and within it before we get into the message there of what Paul ministered in Corinth as Luke gives us that information first and then pulls us into the uh, aspects of their time there. Uh, We have some of this other information that we want to address this morning. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we thank You for Your love for us. Thank You again for the opportunity to look in Your Word. And we pray that it might be directed and uh, completely carried along by Your Spirit, that uh, we might remain true to Your Word, that we might take great caution, both in what is said, but also in what is received, in the manner in which we receive it, that we might recognize that we will be held accountable. Certainly I, for every word said, but also for each of us, for every word we have heard, whether we have regarded it or disregarded it. And so, Lord, we pray that you might have our attention. And we pray that you might work in us by your Spirit to do what only you can do, to convict. And we might be your followers better this week than last because of our time, your Word, together this morning. We praise His in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we arrive in Corinth, and of course uh, we have a mixed bag of results from uh, Athens, if you want to remember back several weeks. We saw that uh, some scoffed. Uh, some said, we'll hear more of this. We've got to think about this a little bit further. And a few, a couple named, uh, believed. That some actually follow. And remember, this is among a philosopher group of people um, who love to just sit around and hear new things. We just came out last week out of Berea where we saw a body of saints that had the courage and the insight to take their time to study God's Word. To consider whether these things are so. And we have some hope in us that in the synagogues, in the place where there's religious people, if we were to translate this in our society, that in the churches there are actually some people who really want to hear God's word, examine it, consider it's truth, and bring it into their lives as authoritative. There are some people out there like that. There are some of my pastor friends who are starting to wonder if that's the case anywhere. Um... But the Brians, they're they're there. There are congregations out there. Uh, Are they rare? Yes. They are rare. Just as rare, maybe more so, than the individual who wants to hear God's word and consider it and bring it into their lives. as an entire congregation that's willing to do that. And yet in Bria, we find just a body like that, a synagogue that receives it. we have some hope, and we go into accordance with a uh, hope that maybe there's others of this ilk that we can confront the gospel with and see their response. Uh, we're excited about the Bereans. And we noted last week that there's no book called To the Bereans, perhaps because they were so adept at doing what they did that there was no need for a book to be written. most of the books that we have are the... the, the uh, Ecclesiastes, the church epistles, are written because there are problems that boiled up in the churches, and certainly what the brains did last week would would inhibit that, if not eradicate it. Problems from without, as false teachers come in; problems from within, as we fail to really get a handle on God's word and bring it into our lives for real. And both of these seem to be addressed by this spirit, this attitude of the Brians who would take out their Bible and with all readiness of mind search the Scriptures, find out what things are true, and believe. And that belief would be evidenced by their following. At Corinth, Paul, having been unable really in Athens to have a lot of exposure to the uh, synagogue, he did reason with them. Uh, He did spend time there in that synagogue in Athens. Uh, He moves to Corinth and he's going to do something similar. But here we have a wonderful event transpire for us in the midst of some pretty harrowing times. And this I want to talk about a little bit. In fact, I'm going to take the whole message on it. We come to his arrival in Corinth and we find that he's not the only one that's arrived there. Another couple has arrived there. Uh, he's traveling south from, uh, the, uh, from Berea, from Athens, and heading south now. he's in the, From Macedonia would be the, the Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. He's traveled south into Greece proper and gone to Athens, and now he's gone a little bit farther south into Corinth. And uh, as he's arrived there, so also has another couple, and they are traveling east. They are coming from Rome. And of course, uh, we are somewhat familiar with this couple because they form a big part of Paul's ministry and the ministry of the church, not only in Corinth, but other places Ephesus as well. They all become uh, partners with Paul in business. That's kind of... Paul's in business? Yes, he took care of working during the week to feed himself and his men. And we're going to find that out. They also became believers. They also became followers and joined Paul in the ministry and they became lay people who were able to encourage and even instruct uh, other men into the pastorate. And that's an exciting people to consider, isn't it? That kind of a couple. But I want you to notice where that came from. We are immediately confronted with the fact that this couple has arrived in Corinth about the same time Paul has uh, because of an event that we would say was a negative thing. We would look at the event that drew them to Corinth as uh, troublesome, at least, that our national government has forced all the Jews to leave Rome, the capital city. Let's just put it in perspective a little bit for you. Uh, Imagine if tomorrow you woke up and the president... Uh, issued an edict that all Christians had to be driven out of Washington, D.C. It was of that nature. And this is what had happened in Rome. And uh, Caesar Claudius uh, uh, issued that edict. And by the way, throughout the history, there was a tension between the Jews and the Romans. Uh, Many times they enjoyed... A favor, because they uh, were not required to worship all the Roman gods, because of the the uniqueness of their faith, uh, they were given a, a privilege to exercise their faith uh, distinct from the rest of the Roman Empire. A privilege that really wasn't afforded to anyone else. This liberty to serve their one true and living God in the fashion that they were. Uh, They were allowed to do so as long as they did not interfere politically with Rome. Uh, And when they did, that was when the fall of Jerusalem occurred in 70 AD. But for much of the time of their subjugation of the Roman Empire, they had liberty to serve and they had a privilege there in the empire. But on occasions, uh, accusations came across against the Jewish people uh, sometimes those were motivated uh, religiously, but mostly they were motivated financially. Can you imagine that? They had some financial issues with the Jewish people. Uh, why do you suppose that is? Um, by the way, this is exactly also why they fell out of favor with a guy named Adolf um, and uh, saw the wealth of the Jewish families in his uh, country and and absorbed that Uh We see it in other environments. There are certainly, I don't want to simplify things that are much more complicated than that, but but, uh, we boil down to, for whatever cause, usually it is financial issues, issues of authority perhaps. Um, Occasionally, the Jews fell out of favor with Rome. And this is one of those occasions. Now, we have seen back in Thessalonica and then in Berea, we've seen uh, when we were in Asia Minor, uh, we saw Paul continually deal with the Jews who rejected his message stirring up mobs against him. That they had an influence in their community and was able to use that influence to stir up uh, men to uh, come against Paul and the believers. That influence now is going to dramatically shift. And I attribute it not to something that Paul was doing differently, but rather to what was going on in the Roman Empire itself. That there's a dramatic shift now. That now instead of the Jews having influence, they are out of favor with Rome. Which means they are immediately out of favor with Romans across the empire And as word got out, as these Jews have been evicted from the capital city, um, they are now not so uh, uh, seen as someone that you want to associate with, either politically or necessarily even economically. So the Jews, as they fell out of favor with Rome, also fell out of influence in their communities. And we're going to see that while there's going to be an attempt by the Corinthian Jewish uh, leadership to come against Paul and his companions like they had in other regions, it is going to fail and fail miserably. And in fact, uh, from this point forward, you're going to see a, a relative insignificance. Even when he gets to Jerusalem, we're going to see the relative powerlessness of the Jews to stop Paul. They're going to try to do some underhanded things. Certainly they, they, they try to, but the Romans just aren't taking it. They aren't going to allow the Jews that kind of influence anymore. And from this point forward, we see a real turning point. Something that we might say, well, that's bad. That's horrible. That, that the, Ro- the city of Rome has turned against the people of the one true and living God. And yet we find that God works this out. Not just for this couple's benefit. Not just for Paul's benefit. But actually it ends up being for the benefit of the gospel. And it first comes into fruition here in Corinth. And so they are driven out. And Aquila and Priscilla arrive in Corinth. They still need to make a living. They are make a living constructing temporary homes. Paul is of that same occupation. We discover... And so they go into business together. In verse 3, it says he was of the same trade. He stayed with them, worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. In verse 4, it says he reads, in the synagogue every Sabbath, persuaded both Jews and Greeks. And we have him affecting his ministry once again in that location uh, in the synagogue. But we find this couple, and it's fascinating because nowhere do we have a description of this couple's conversion. And we don't know when did that happened. Uh, we can imply that it happened fairly quickly of Paul's interaction with them. Uh, but it doesn't say that they heard his gospel and believed. But by, before the end of the chapter, we find them very active in churches, and we find them very active in, in a, a, approaching one Apollos and telling him about Jesus Christ and how the message of John the Baptist needs to be furthered. And, and we're going to find that engagement as a lay couple. Um, But at some point, very early on in their relationship, they must have come to know the Lord. And so, here we find... Well, it started off with a negative. We're getting kicked out of Rome. This is a bad thing, right? Here, the the emperor is turning away from us uh, and is throwing us out of the city. we come into disfavor. Certainly... This can't be good. And yet the Bible says that God works all things together for the good. And we continue to see, as we talked about last week, about when we referenced the mob of rebellion, that it would be an easy thing to say, oh, what an evil Caesar this is. We should rebel against him. We should try to stop him. We should raise up a military against him. This is not boding well for people of faith. Because at this point, Christianity was just a sect of Judaism in most people's minds. It wasn't a, another faith. It was simply a, a division among the Jews. Some would contend that, that this couple had already received Christ in Rome by other believers. They arrived there in Corinth and hook up with Paul very quickly when they hear him reasoning in the synagogue. We find that the Bible does not state that what Claudius did was wrong or evil, simply that it occurred. And that it was a means by which Paul would have a greater liberty to minister. This guy had been beaten pretty badly so far, would you agree? Um, He has suffered pretty severely, uh, and His body certainly shows it. In fact, um, when we get later on in his arrest, uh, we recognize that he can't visually recognize the high priest. He is unable in his vision to even be able to recognize that that's the high priest. This is a man who was raised a Pharisee of the Pharisees in Jerusalem. He would know what the high priest would be wearing. He would be able to recognize him if he could see him. But as we get later on in his arrest... And in his trial, he's going to not be able to know, oh, that's the high priest. I didn't know that. His vision, we are sure, was badly injured somewhere along the line and all that he endured at the hands, mostly, of his fellow Jews who had incited mobs against him. So we don't find God condemning Claudius for this act. Rather, we find God in it that we might... Uh, see a work of God in protecting the gospel in this time by reducing the influence of the Jewish community in Roman city after Roman city, that Roman officials no longer are so concerned about the Jews about uh, uh, and the favor that they have carried. And so now Paul has opportunity to preach. And this hasn't really dawned on him completely, I don't think. I don't think it has really factored in, and it is often late before we realize the, that some things that we might think of as negatives are actually benefits. We think of persecution as a negative. And we see the efforts of the Christian community to try to stop it and try to bring attention to it. And how can we... Uh, Let it continue in this civilized world. Uh, But the fact is, is that from understanding of God's word and from church history, uh, this is something we should be embracing. This is the evidence of our faith. And it's where there is no persecution that we should be concerned. Because that just means that we have adopted ourselves, adapted ourselves to our world that we have not ever distinguished ourselves sufficiently to get under their skin enough to oppose us that should bother us that i can move and breathe and work and and engage in relationships within my community and my christianity is not a factor in any of those that should bother us that no one takes it into account And so we wring our hands at the idea of a baker being fined for not baking a cake for a certain wedding of certain people. And we think that is horrific. I think, well, good. It's about time that we started realizing that faith is costly. It costs our Savior everything. Everything. And He calls upon us to follow Him. To take up our cross and follow Him. That if they hated Him, they ought to hate us. And so, here we come into this environment and we would think, though, well, this is negative. This is a bad thing. But it ends up being a very, very good thing, ultimately, for the gospel. And wherever violent persecution has gone, the, the gospel has not been defeated. It has flourished. In China today, there are more Christians than there are in the United States. Wrap your head around that for a little while. In China today, there are more Christians than there are in the United States. There's actually more Christians than communists in China, is the claim by the Chinese pastors. Without religious liberty... With many pastors still in prison today, this is a condition of the church in China. Alive and well. Which is not two words I would use to describe the church in the United States. We find that we look at the working of nations and of governments and of authorities in our own self-interest and not in the interest of the gospel. We would look at this and say, this is a bad thing Claudius did. And instead, when we look back at it now, we can see clearly this was a benefit. It benefited this couple that they were able to come into this relationship with Paul and his entourage. They're about to join him um, as Silas and Timothy uh, came and... uh, uh, Join with them. Luke was with them there already, and they're ready to go, ready for ministry. They are brought into this relationship because they were driven out of Rome, and we. This is the first time we've seen this in the Book of Acts, is it? Remember that the early church stayed in the temple, stayed in the temple. Everyone had to come to Jerusalem to hear the gospel. And they just weren't obeying the command. They were supposed to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. They were just comfortable staying in Jerusalem. This is great. This is a huge party. We got all these believers. We're taking care of each other's needs. It's just fantastic. Let's just stay like this. The kingdom of God is certainly about to uh, to dawn on the horizon of time. We're just going to sit back and watch it happen. And God brings a guy named Saul with his fellow Pharisees and religious leaders to disrupt all of that and to bring persecution and scatter the believers. And that scattering meant the gospel went where it was supposed to go from the beginning. Something bad, we would say, horrible. In fact, Paul himself would say, that was a horrible, that was a wrong act of mine, but yet it is attributed with the early spread of the gospel out of Jerusalem. And so, when we sit in our culture and start to evaluate the actions of authorities around us, we tend to do it from a very selfish perspective. What makes it easier for me? What makes it of less costly for me to be a Christian? What makes it more comfortable for me to continue to operate in society in secret? And we evaluate our president, our Congress, and our, our state authorities or local authorities all based upon that premise that if I'm uncomfortable, if I if it is costing me something, if it if it demands something, or if it singles me out and I and, and identifies me for either ridicule or or disfavor, then it must be bad. And the Bible has a very different perspective on all of that. And maybe instead of decrying these acts, we ought to be applauding them because finally we can start to thin out. Who is for real and who is faking it all along? That as soon as my Christianity costs me something, I'm out the door. Forget it. That's too much. I'm not in it for that. I'm in it for answered prayer and and uh, health and and somebody said that I it would generate money in my wallet if I went. You know, I'm in it for all these other reasons. Whatever it is that you're here for, but not following Christ. When it becomes costly, we begin to find out who's for real, don't we? Does that mean that the act itself is not evil? Oh, Paul would disagree. He would say, no, this, my actions were sin. It made me the worst of sinners. But we see that God is yet at work. And the glory doesn't go to the action of the authority that perpetrated something against God's people. They'll be held accountable. But not to us. They'll be held accountable to God. And we cry out, not against that authority, but to God. And He reckons them. (laughs) He brings them into that time where they must answer. But in this season... We recognize that there's purpose in that, and that that purpose that we might view as, as, as an evil act, God works for good. And He works it to the favor of the gospel. Now, are those events horrible? Yes. It's a horrible thing to watch a man be beheaded. It's a horrible thing to see... Uh, Church full of people burned to the ground with the people still in it. It's a horrible thing to witness, to see happening. It's disturbing. But it is not the most disturbing. The most disturbing is to see people who claim to be Christians. living ungodly lives. That to me is far more disturbing than seeing believers line up to be slaughtered. Is to see because they are glorifying God. They're bringing praise to the name of Jesus. Even to their captors, to their enemies, to the ones who are doing injury to them, they are witnessing of it. But for what should really turn our stomachs and make us look away and go, how can it be? Is when we see those who call by, call themselves by the name of Jesus, call themselves Christians, followers of Christ, and live like the world, and by their actions deny the one who saved them. By their behavior and speech, by their engagement with the world, they don't look any different. That's, should concern us because that Christ unanimously condemns again and again. You deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. And I want to contend with you that to live like the world in front of the world is to deny God, to so deny Christ in the public forum. And so we're called to be different to stand for righteousness in an ungodly world, looking for the blessed hope and glory supreme of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. But we must live righteously before men. This is our calling. Rather than in rebellion against authorities that don't seem to be benefiting us, in fact seem to be making it more and more difficult to be a Christian. It would appear that this would make it on the surface more difficult for Christians, a sect considered a sect of Judaism, to function. We would have decried this, but God uses it, and He uses it mightily. And Paul goes in the synagogue, and and he's rejected again in the synagogue like he is in many other places, uh, even after persuading, but we have many who did believe. Um, They are blaspheming. Uh, He then leaves there in verse 7. We're going to look into some of the core issues there in a little bit. Goes right next door. I love that. In verse 7, goes right to the guy that lives next door to the synagogue, and he holds services there. (laughs) Isn't that great? Um, This this is a Greek person apparently, Justice. And and he goes to the next door, and he says, Okay, I'm done with you Jews. I have a clear conscience with regard to you guys. I'm going next door. And then, we are told in verse 8, something phenomenal. The leader of the synagogue. Remember the one that just got done blaspheming God? The leader of that synagogue... Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. And then Paul has received a vision. I told you I don't think Paul really understood the the nature of what was going on uh, in reference to the relation between Rome and the Jews and the work of the gospel. But here, Christmas, the rule of the Jews, rule of that synagogue there in Corinth, um, comes to Christ. You like might say, well, certainly he would influence the synagogue and, and they would all change and, and, and stop blaspheming God, and now we have a whole synagogue coming to Christ. But we don't. You know what we have? We have a change of leadership. Christmas comes to know Christ with his household, the ruler of the synagogue. But before we get to the end of verse 17, we find in verse 17, a new ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes. What does that tell you? That immediately for this man Crispus, there was a cost. That when he received Christ as a Savior, he fully understood that this would Take him out of that very powerful position in the community, especially of the Jewish community, of being the ruler of the synagogue. The evidence is that he might have even left the synagogue entirely. Followed Paul right out the door. And so he surrenders that. And you say, oh, you could have done so much as the ruler of the synagogue has so much influence. Not while there's blasphemy going on. And that concept that somehow... In the environment of blasphemy, we can have ministry among people who are engaged in that is just error. That's like Paul letting the gal fill the demon, declare who he is as he walks down the road, right? In fact, Jesus himself had that same engagement in Luke. We, we described about that. He, went, he told all the spirits, you be quiet. Keep quiet. You don't get to tell people who I am. I don't need your witness." Be quiet. He silenced the spirits. Wouldn't let them, the the demons. Wouldn't let them talk and declare who he was. We don't want that testimony. And similarly here, Christus recognized that he couldn't influence these who rejected Christ. You cannot force, even with authority, people to accept Christ as their Savior. You can't do it. Historically, the church has tried. Uh, foolishly, to enforce Christianity on societies, uh, including up and down the Americas, right? We know the history of the Americas. So we're going to come in and plant the flag and declare that all of you are now Christians. Line up for baptism. Whether you want it or not. Cannot be done. And so here, a ruler of the synagogue, Christmas, comes to know Christ. He is very quickly replaced by Sosthenes, Um, We find that the synagogue isn't done with Paul. They want to take him out. But because of the relationship in Rome between Caesar and the Jewish community, he has no leg left to stand on in the community. I'm talking about Sosthenes. He takes Paul with the same accusation we've heard before that worked in other villages, other communities, other cities, and, and was effective. Um, and he's going to take the same accusation and say in verse 13, that a fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And they're in front of the proconsul Gallio at the Bema Seat. And, and if you go to Corinth today, by the way, you can go and stand in that very spot. Because we actually, one of the things they uncovered when they uh, did the excavation of Corinth was the Bema Seat. Bema. And that's where this event would have happened. And uh, you can go there now. It's kind of exciting. And you can stand in front of there. Um, Joyce and I had that privilege to do that uh, there. And uh, to hear our our brethren wax eloquent. It was incredible. Uh, One of the best presentations I've seen on Corinth. There he is. But do they have an argument? The same thing. These people are violating... Roman law, they're telling us to worship someone else. And he's like, wait a minute, this is about worship? You know, you guys have had this time of favor, and it's over now. And guy says, uh-uh. I'm not walking down this road with you at all. You're going to have to deal with it yourselves. You are no longer in favor with the Roman government. You deal with it. And in fact, <clears throat> he drove them, that's a very strong term, verse 16, he drove them from the judgment seat, and all the Greeks took Thosthenes and beat him. And so as he's leaving the judgment seat, the Greeks take him and they beat not Paul, but Thosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, there in front of Gallio, and Gallio says, takes no mind of it. I don't even care. The relationship between the Roman government and the Jewish people has Shifted, and because of that, the Jewish people have lost their favor. They've lost their influence. And now, here's this proconsul who recognizes, you know, if Rome doesn't tolerate you guys, I have no reason to tolerate you. Instead of working against Paul, we see it working to his favor, and in the midst of this, Paul is given this vision. And the vision is listen, I know that you have suffered a lot. <laughs> Here it says, it says, you do not be afraid. Um, I got to believe that Paul is more human than we often let on that he is. I think he was afraid a lot of times. Um, you get beat up that many times and you get people turning on you as often as he had people. You start getting a little gun shy. Um, Of course, there weren't guns back then. You get a little sword shy. Uh, Here it comes again. Here come the rocks. Here come the the mob. Here I go. Uh, What's this going to cost me? How bad is this going to hurt? How long am I going to have to heal from this? And God comes and says, don't be afraid. You speak. Don't keep silent. I'm with you. No one will attack you to hurt you. I have a lot of people I'm planning for in this city. And I earnestly believe that that statement by God is directly linked to the description given in in verse 2 that this relationship now that has changed between Rome and the Jewish people has given a level of Freedom for you, Paul, that no longer are you going to have to be drug around in court and beat up in the marketplaces of communities by the influence of Jews over mobs. That's gone now. The influence is gone. They're on the outs. They're the people that are are now, uh, they're not rejected. They're just uh, not in favor anymore. And now they don't have influence. And now without that influence... You have a liberty to really live out the gospel and to really speak it forth without any fear. It says he continued there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And for 18 months, he's able to minister there in Corinth. And many come to know Christ. We're going to talk a little bit more about Corinth next week and describe it, why it was so important a city for us to have the gospel penetrate deeply, uh, if not in terms of of, uh, holiness, at least in terms of uh, many coming to know Christ. But I want to take this time to really consider the relationship that God has in the workings of nations, in the workings of those in authority. And this is really tied to last week's last Sunday's message about rebellion. That if we're not going to be part of this mob mentality that if anything doesn't go the way I like it, or if I just want to hear one side, I'm going to react to it and move into this course of not following authorities. We find the work of authorities, even when it is that which we would conclude is wrong, is still useful. And there is a great tension there for us. I'm sure. But it is a matter of trust. Not in the authorities, but trust in the one who put them there. That we trust God to work through all things. His work. There's a song we grew up with, well we didn't grow up with it, in college, exposed to it from a couple of gals in our school. It says, I've been through a fire that has deepened my desire to know the living God. Praise God that finally in our nation there's a little bit of a fire to purify his people. Why are we trying to stop it? Politically. Why are we trying to stop it judicially? We haven't been a Christian nation. Why do we want to pretend we still are? Wherever we're. Why do we want to pretend that? So that a lot of people can go to hell under the pretext that I must be a Christian because I'm in this country or because I go to church. Imagine how many Americans are in hell today because of that wrong concept, that assumption of faith. We have an opportunity to, in this day and age, to begin to see a flame kindled. And I'm not wringing my hands, and I'm not going pulling out my hair. It's just falling out, folks. Um, I'm not. I'm not really worried. And I'm not really stressing over it. I'm kind of excited about where this whole thing might go. That we might actually get to a point that the church might be purified. And under that purified pl- place, can have a true impact on its community uh, in measure that we really haven't seen for generations in this country. But it's going to require a fire. And it's going to require us not to rebel against authorities. And so, no, I'm not going to invite you ever to take up arms uh, against the government, but rather that we lay down our lives, if necessary. And our businesses, and our money, in our houses, whatever it is they want to take from us, that we do it joyfully. Because we've counted the cost of our faith. And we recognize it is too valuable to deny for anything on this earth. Now, does that mean I'm going to incite persecution? No. Outspiring. <laughs> The only way I'm going to incite persecution is by being righteous. I'm not going to get in people's faces and, and incite that. I'm simply going to try to be like Christ, and that's enough. You try to be godly in this world. That's enough to get people's attention. You try to do what's right and speak the truth and not cheat and not steal and not do all those things that you know are going on in your workplaces in your neighborhoods. And, and in terms of speech, that we not be rabble-rousers, but rather that we be polite and that we be honest and that we be just all the things our men studied Thursday night about our speech. You talk like that, like a, the Proverbs calls you to speech. You, you talk like that and you'll get the attention of people around you pretty quickly. Are you ready to pay the price? Are we ready to recognize that maybe some of the things that we think are bad, God's going to use for the benefit of the gospel? So rather than scream on Facebook how evil this is, that we're prepared rather to look at ourselves and say, am I ready to pay that price? Am I ready to walk away from everything for Jesus Christ? Am I ready to allow them to take everything away? Including my liberty, my freedom, my life. There are people on this planet who have reckoned that cost and have paid it. In this planet today, this hour, that's happening somewhere. When it happens here, oh, let's not take up arms and say we need to vote out the bums and get different leadership and change the laws. No, because that's not going to change anyone's life. The answer is that we pay the price and we stay the course and we serve God. And that will get the attention of men for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was ready to pay the price. He was a little afraid of it. It was going to be painful. He was ready to pay it. And God comes in and intervenes in a wonderful way to give him a liberty to speak. And a guy named Crispus responds. Change of leadership. New leadership wants to take out Paul and probably Crispus along the way. And God intervenes to that same evil government. We need to see beyond our own comfort beyond our own interests and say, what is God doing when we see authorities moving against what we would consider our religious rights? Are we going to respond with rebellion? Are we going to respond by faith taking a stand? And more than willing to pay the price for that stand. Lord God, would do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the testimony of Paul and Quill and Priscilla and Crispus and others. Lord, we know that you are equally at work in this age as in that one. In this day. With the authorities that exist in this country and in this state and this community in our lives, in our homes, in our church, that You are there. And while we see men doing evil, we know that You are still at work to turn those things for our benefit. and For the benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, this is our hope. This is our earnest desire is that your gospel go forth with clarity and power and we know that for it to do that demands more of us than what we've been given we've been giving so little in terms of paying price for righteousness we have grown weak we've grown soft Just, Lord, give us a, a courage to be steadfast in our faith, to walk as You walk. Remember, without it, we have failed to do that. Lord, forgive us for being so much like the world that they can't even recognize us as different from them. They would never even think to ask us of the hope that we have for there's no evidence of it in our lives. Lord, forgive us of that. We pray that You might find us Living differently. Not in rebellion to you or to our authorities, but rather in submission. Being holy as you are holy. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your hymn book. Stand with me as we close. Number 267. The light of the world is Jesus. Stand with me. because of what it stated, and I want to emphasize it by not seeing the rest. You claim to abide in Jesus. It says you walk in the light when we follow our guide. And I pray you follow your guide this week, the Spirit of God, in righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank You for Your Word, and we pray that we might truly walk in the darkness carrying a bright light. Not of our own Making, but of yours in us. And Lord, we pray that we might follow you better than ever we have. In Christ Jesus' name.